I want to dive right into the word this morning. We have for the last several weeks been a part of a series called What is Truth? Understanding that we live in a culture today that is skeptical as it relates to what our faith looks like, how we live it out in the world, and we thought that it would be nice for us to have a series by which we could begin to put some tools in the tool belt of our testimony so that we could address those that are skeptics in our world of our faith from a position of strength, of how do we know that the Bible is true, how do we know that Jesus lived, and and there's a number of things that we've gone through in this series, and if this is your first Sunday today, I would encourage you to go to the website because we have the entire series listed there for you to listen to. But today I want to approach this topic of can I believe in the Bible and science? Can I believe in the Bible and science? Um, We live in the middle of a world that has this mindset that if you are a person of science that you cannot be a person of faith. And I believe that there are some things that we're going to discuss today that will begin to help you as a person of faith and those who have great intelligences in the area of sciences to be able to speak to this well. Our theme verse has been John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, Lord, as we launch into this today, I ask that by the guidance of your Holy Spirit that you told us would lead us and guide us into all truth. We rely on that as we look at a topic today that is so important in our world. And I ask, Father, that you would help me, even though I am speaking a language that is not my own, to be clear and understandable as we approach this topic. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I believe in Bible and science? I need to let you know right now that the primary credit for most of this message comes from Dr. James Bradford, who is both a pastor of a church that is my home church in Springfield, Missouri, and also has his doctorate in aerospace engineering and rocket science. Therefore, he provides a unique view of how theology and science can blend. In fact, He jokes often that when he goes on vacation, the books that he reads for fun are physics books. That that puts him in a unique category because none of those are on my vacation uh, reading list. But we approach this today with an understanding that one of the top five reasons that millennials, those that are generally between the ages of 25 and 40, are dropping out of biblical faith is because they believe that science is supposedly making it impossible for them to believe the Bible. And we live in a culture today, and and this is especially true of a very aggressive atheistic movement, particularly in the last 20 years, that we have had many of our children grow up hearing today that somehow the Bible and science is incompatible. In fact, not only are they incompatible, you hear voices today that they are absolutely enemies of one another. And so for many of you that are attending school, this is the element by which you are involved in on a regular basis. I would tell you today that there are many scientists who would say that that has not been their experience. And so as we dive into this today... I recognize that we have a congregation that many of you are involved in the medical field. Many of you are engineers. Many of you are science teachers. Many of you love biology and physics and and, and love how things fit together and work. And today, I'm going to be speaking your language. 
It amazed me after the first service how many people were coming up. And, and I need you to know that although I use the language doesn't necessarily mean I understand it. Just pray that God helps me pronounce things the right way. If you've ever been involved in research, then there are some verses of the Bible that are particularly interesting to you. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, wisdom here is being described. In fact, wisdom is being personified in this verse. When it says, I, wisdom, was there when he set heavens in place and when he, God, marked out the horizon of the face of the deep. And so wisdom is saying, I am watching God's creative genius at work. And then in verse 30, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day and night, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. And so there is this sense for some of you that just delight in the physics, delight in figuring out how things work, delight in the, the creative process of God and how all of that fits within your life. And then for those of you that may be math and science gurus, one of the most faith and science verses in the Bible is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse... And so here we find in the scripture that there are a lot of things that apparently we can understand by being observant. As we look at the universe, particularly, scripture tells us that we can understand the nature of God and the power of God as we look at what he has done. That there is a general revelation that we see and that this revelation is so powerful that it brings us to a place where it is understandable and will leave people without excuse. What is important for us to look at today is this. What is science telling us? It could indicate something about the knowledge of God and his eternal power and the divine nature of God. And then at the end of this, I also want to tell you what science is not telling us. And so I'm going to borrow an outline that Dr. Stephen Meyer used to summarize what science is saying to us in three great realms of science. In fact... For many of you, I have discovered that you've been purchasing some of the books that I have been using as resources. And if you want to purchase Dr. Meyer's new book, it is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. The Return of the God Hypothesis. And in it, he gives compelling scientific evidence for the existence of God. He begins to confront the critics of science in this book as well, and it is a powerful read. So if you are sharing your faith in this day and age, particularly if you come from a science background, at some point, somebody is going to say to you, science just makes it impossible for me to believe the Bible. And so I want to present to you today a memorable outline that should help us as we begin to face the skeptics of our world. Dr. Meyer starts with this field of study, cosmology indicating that the universe has a beginning or had a beginning. Now, I need you to understand that there's a difference between cosmology and cosmetology. Those are, are different sciences with different outcomes. Um, this is the study of the cosmos. 
The universe is absolutely amazing. I don't know how many of you enjoy standing in a dark field or someplace dark and looking up into the night sky and just seeing things that you cannot see in the light as, as it begins to pop out to you. Dr. Richard Hammer, who is the legal counsel for the General Council of the Assemblies of God nationwide, is also an astronomer by night. In fact, he teaches astronomy at Evangel University, and he is so adept at taking pictures with his, his camera and his telescopes that NASA has published many of his pictures. I want to show you a few of those today. The first slide I want to show you is Omega Centauri. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the sky, you recognize that this is a globular star cluster. And it is part of our galaxy where stars are much closer together than in our neighborhood. In fact, there perhaps are billions of stars that are so close together here, it appears that they give out a singular light. And in this grouping of multiple millions of stars, there are billions and billions of stars that surround this. And that is called our Milky Way. This is a beautiful picture of a few of them. The next photo that I would like to show you is of the Pinwheel Galaxy. This is an entirely different galaxy than the Milky Way. It's completely outside of it. In fact, it took Dr. Hammer 10 hours of exposure to capture the image that was accommodating for the rotation of the Earth and all kinds of things. In this galaxy, there are billions of more stars, and this galaxy galaxy is actually one of the closer galaxies to Earth. In fact, at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, to get to the pinwheel galaxy would take you 2.6 million years at the speed of light, and this is a close one. Then the next photo is of the Sculptor galaxy. This is another photo that Dr. Hammer took. At the speed of light, this one's not too far away, it will only take you 11.4 million years at the speed of light to get to this. And I want to keep this one up here for just a few minutes because 100 years ago, scientists believed that there were no other galaxies in space besides ours. They thought the Milky Way was it. They also believed 100 years ago that the universe has always been here and it was called the steady state nature of the universe, that nothing changed in it. They believed that it had always been that way and that there had been no beginning. However, interesting enough, a famous astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble, any of you recognize that name? A hundred years ago, was looking through his telescopes and he realized that there were other galaxies out there, that we are not the only one. And then he made this discovery. These galaxies are moving away from Earth at a rapid, rapid rate. Literally, the farther away they are, the faster they are traveling. It was a fancy way of saying that actually speaking, in order for them to move, there had to be a beginning. The universe had to have a beginning. It had to have a starting point. At the same time as Hubble was discovering this, Einstein was developing his general theory of relativity. And to his shock and dismay, because he did not want anything that had God implications involved in his theory, he came to realize that the equations of his own theory spoke of an expanding universe, and in order for that to happen, it had to have a starting point.
Einstein, seeing Hubble's work and seeing where that equation took him, tried to change his equation to take away a starting point. Now, this is where the phrase, follow the science, took a left turn. We hear that often today. Because he didn't exactly follow the science. In fact, he let worldview begin to try to give him a covering. And what happens is we are still seeing that so many times today that in this materialistic science world right now, popular theory is overcoming actual science. But finally and reluctantly, Einstein caved in and admitted famously, yes, the universe has a beginning. And so this is where science has come in the last 100 years. The scientific world has come all the way to the first three words of the Bible. In the beginning. I would advise you that if you would like to see more pictures like this, you can go to seetheglory.com. It's Dr. Hammer's page, and he's got tons and tons of beautiful photos, and frankly, you need to see them in a dark room for the colors to begin to explode out at you. Seetheglory.com. There's another field of science, and that is physics. And in physics, we are learning the laws of nature are finely tuned. They are so finely tuned that it seems highly improbable that any of this could have happened by accident. This is why those that are skeptics get around to talking about multiple universes, meaning that since there are multiple universes out there, an infinite amount, that it is likely that one of them got everything right, the conditions were right to produce what we have today. But the fact is this, you still need fine-tuning. With the universe generating mechanisms and certain boundary conditions, you still have to ask yourself the same question. Did this happen by chance? And if so, how did this happen by chance? Probably the most famous scientist today is Dr. Francis Collins. He oversees the National Institute of Health. He himself is a geneticist. And he and his team were the first ever in human history to sequence the human genome, which is a staggering scientific accomplishment. And as Dr. Collins, as an adult scientist, has an amazingly inspiring story of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what he writes. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe... It looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. The gravitational constant, various constants about strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any of those constants are off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, no stars, no planets, and no people. In other words, the universe is so finely tuned that everything had to be precisely perfect. There's a man by the name of Craig Kruger. He is a pastor of the Sojourn Campus Church, but he is also a mathematician, and that is his background. And he writes this. Now, it is true that 40 billion planets in the Milky Way may have sufficient liquid water to support biological life as we know it, but... What of the other necessary zones? 
Let's take the photosynthetic zone as an example. Without photosynthesis, only microbes can exist. No animals or plants can survive. For photosynthesis to occur, seven factors must be fine-tuned. Light intensity, ambient temperature, carbon dioxide concentration, regularly occurring seasonal variation, mineral availability, liquid water supply, and atmospheric humidity for land-based life. These seven factors alone eliminate all known star planet systems for habitability except our sun-earth system. And then there are six other zones to explore. In the very first message that I preached in this series, I referenced a writer by the name of Mark Pinsky, a journalist. And I want to repeat a quote that I used back then. He writes, while impossible to quantify, a surprising number of prominent British researchers at the pinnacle of their fields with worldwide reputations in the physical and biological sciences proclaim their evangelical Christian faith, sometimes at the risk to their careers. And then he answers why. First, they say the likelihood that intelligent carbon-based life originated in the universe by chance is infinitesimally small. And second, they proclaim their belief that they accept as firsthand the biblical accounts of Jesus' life, death, and physical resurrection. So cosmology is telling us that the universe had a beginning. Physics is telling us that the laws of nature and the universe are finely tuned in its laws, which leads us then to biology, my worst class. And biology telling us, tells us that life is coded with information. And the question that we as Christians can ask is, where did that information come from? You see, you have matter and you have energy, but where did information come from? For those of you that have computers, you take your computer and that, it's the matter, it's the hard thing that you hold, and then you plug it into electricity and that provides the power. But where does the information, where does the software programming come from? It seems to require intelligence of some kind in order to produce information. I want to show you a slide. This is my wife and I kissing our one-year-old grandbaby crew who's our oldest grandson. He's now 11, but this was when he was one. Look at that look on his face. He knew early, oh my goodness, I'm going to get kissed a lot. In his little body are billions and billions of cells, and in every one of the billions and billions of cells is the longest word in the universe. In fact, the word is at least three billion letters long. It is a combination of four chemical letters that are just called CGAT. It is a genome. It is his DNA. And he looks a little bit like his dad, and he looks a little bit like his mother, but now that he is a preteen and has entered into a new stage, we are seeing that everything that has been programmed into his little body, all of the information is now functioning in the part of his development. And it was discovered in the 1950s by Crick and Watson, and it is called a double helix DNA. And I want to show you a picture of that. Here's a diagram of it. 
Those little rungs on the ladder are called nucleotides, and they are made up of a combination of CGAT chemical letters. And that goes on for three to three and a half billion of those letters for each individual. It is programmed, coded information built into every human being. And each of those strands of DNA are woven together into one of our trillions of cells that we have into 23 pairs of chromosomes. Every time I hold one of my grandkids and every time you hold one of yours or your children or a loved one, you can think, how incredible is this creation? And here are the words of John Lennox, an Oxford mathematician and a philosopher, and he writes, In recent years, information has come to be regarded as one of the fundamental concepts of science. This is new. One of the most intriguing things is that it's not physical. This information that you are reading at the moment is carried on physical medium of paper and ink or a physical computer screen. But the information itself is not material. And I argue in detail elsewhere, the non-materiality of information points to a non-material source, a mind, the mind of God. So in summary, the universe had a beginning. The laws of nature are finely tuned. And life is coded with information. So now I want to ask you this question. Do any of these statements take away from your biblical faith? Is there anything about this that seems to contradict the fact that we can have a faith in God? Do any of these statements threaten your faith? Do any of those statements about science tell us that leads us to a place where we cannot believe the Bible and believe in science? The answer to that is no. In fact, it's the opposite. You will never hear it in the media. But more and more scientists today are coming to believe that the biblical truth and science fit. Dr. Bradford tells a story of a friend that is working in a think tank in Chicago. He says this man and his colleagues are so brilliant that the science that they are working on today is going to be the foundation for our technology 20 years from now. He said, back in the 80s, my friend said this, in the 80s and 90s, there was an arrogance in our community that we could figure out what is called TOE, T-O-E, or the theory of everything, and that the sciences would uncover the secrets to everything. He said, something started to shift the more we started to understand some of these things. He said, I would sit in briefings every moment from the scientific data that came in from researchers all over the world overnight. And he said, it was interesting that over time, our arrogance began to give way to a humility. He said, I would actually hear some of the world's leading minds look at the data that came back and they would whisper to themselves, oh my goodness, this looks like God. This looks like God. Folks, none of this stuff threatens us. It leads us to the Bible and it tells us that the universe had a beginning and it was created and it was fine-tuned and that an intelligent mind coded the whole world with information. And this makes perfect sense. Because under the surface in the scientific community, there are more and more of the world's brightest minds that are coming to a realization that they need 
Jesus because God exists. So skeptics will tell you, well, aren't all true scientists atheists? Actually, 66% or two-thirds of all Nobel science winners through the years believe in God. That science does not take away from biblical faith. Let me close with this. Let me tell you what science is not telling you. One of the most important equations in science is the Schrodinger wave equation. Have any of you ever heard it? Any? You guys are way smarter than I am because it uses quantum theory. Right next to my Bible are all my quantum theory books. I use them to stand on to be taller. Here is what Erwin Schrodinger wrote. I am very astonished that the scientific picture of the real world around me is very deficient. It gives us a lot of factual information, puts all of our experience in a magnificently consistent order, but it is ghastly silent about all that is near to our heart that really matters to us. It knows nothing of beauty and ugly, good or bad, God or eternity. Science sometimes pretends to answer these questions in these domains, but the answers are often so silly that we are not inclined to take them seriously. You see, what happens is in the world in which we live and the skeptics that approach us, materialistic science will reduce you to a totally chemical reaction, that you are a totally random event that strips away your personhood and every culture that has adopted blatant atheistic materialism has gone the direction of dehumanizing every human life. Because these are the questions science can't answer. What makes us uniquely human? Is our spirit and soul more than our physical brain? Where does moral authority come from? And how can meaning exist? You see, science doesn't have the answers to those questions. But here is what the Apostle John in the very first verse of the first chapter wrote in his gospel. And worship team, if you'd please come. He says, in the beginning was the word. I'm fascinated by the fact that he borrows the first three words from the beginning of the Bible. But he doesn't say that in the beginning was mass and energy. Nope. He says, in the beginning, listen to this, in the beginning was information. In the beginning was information. Word. Logos. The totality of what we could know and we could understand and everything that God wants us to know and understand about himself as creator was spoken to us in the beginning was the word and it turns out that the information was a person by the name of Jesus and the word was with God and the word information was God he was with God in the beginning next week we're going to look at Genesis 1 and the creation story from the perspective of the science in the Bible match and he said that Jesus himself was present and active and equal to God in the creation process. And so when we see the scripture says that through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, then we see this. 
But then to pick up where science leaves off because science is unable to answer the truly important questions for the average human being, we see this in verse 4. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And then there's a stunning revelation that comes 10 verses later in verse 14. And the Word, the information, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, which leads us right into Christmas. And the Word, the information, coded, became flesh to explain it to us. So in the beginning, God's information was coded with all life. And that leads us to a Christmas season where on Christmas Eve and the Sunday after, I will be preaching messages as I wrap this series up on Is Christmas True?